And if you're new here, feel free to check out our private paranormal group on Facebook.com. The same name as you see here, Demi Bond Paranormal. So I just want to take a brief moment to welcome all of our listeners, new and old. I hope you guys enjoy tonight's episode. Tonight, we will be exploring the art of dying. We will be exploring post-mortem photography, which was quite popular in the Victorian era in Great Britain and America especially. But it was found all over Europe as well, in certain places in Europe. As we roll through tonight's episode, I will also be including different types of funerary practices from all around the world. This includes New Guinea, the Philippines, Madagascar, and I hope you guys liked tonight's episode. If you do, and if you're new listeners, feel free to tune in each Friday for an all-new episode of Demi Mont Paranormal. That being said, let's dive right in to the art of dying. Alright, welcome everybody. For our first segment, I thought it'd be interesting to take us to a couple or, or a few countries here to learn about different types of funerary practices. For example, we're starting off in the Philippines. Now, hidden high in the mountains of the Philippines, the people of Sagada built their loved ones and themselves a final resting place high up on the mountains, on the cliffs of the mountains, which is, as you know, a very difficult area to reach and a very scary one. They believe that a coffin that rests on high elevation brings them closer to heaven. And in New Guinea, among the Nami people of Papua, both women and children would cut off their own fingers when it came to a death in the family. This was done to ward off spirits, but in today's age, the practice is banned. Additionally, in Madagascar, a practice known as Matahana is where people would dig up their loved ones every five to seven years to take care of them. This included rewrapping the deceased, perfuming the deceased, share stories with them, and they would also dance with the deceased. Furthermore, in Mongolia, there is a practice known as air sacrifice which is when the family of a deceased person would arrange the body with an outline of stones out in the wilderness. Then they would allow the corpse to be eaten by hungry dogs and scavenger birds until only the stone outline is left. This is believed to represent the spirit. In the early 20th century, what was known as the death stroke the death stroke was thought to be a cure for all ailments. This includes cancer, goiters, and skin conditions. The death stroke was when an afflicted person 
would attend a public execution. It was believed that touching a prisoner who was about to die, usually by hanging, could cure all illnesses. This also had to be the touch of a supposed murderer as well. In the novel by Sir James Matthew Barry, the author of Peter Pan, Peter Pan himself even said, To die would be an awfully big adventure. So, have you guys ever heard of exploding casket syndrome? You may ask yourself, what is exploding casket syndrome? It's the buildup of methane gases in deceased individuals who are already buried. And they're the cause of what professionals in the mortuary business call exploding casket syndrome. The gas could quite literally blow the doors off of a casket or a crypt. To prevent this from happening, some casket makers have invented their own type of Tupperware, and Tupperware is in quotation marks, to seal, to release the accumulated gases. In some funeral homes, these protective burping seals are unsealed after the grieving family leaves the home, just to relieve some of those methane gases. Other funeral homes may not even engage the protective seals at all, just to avoid all those putrid conditions inside the casket. Also, did you guys know that rigor mortis is a temporary thing? Rigor mortis is when chemical bonds in certain muscle fiber cells become linked together. The bonds usually break down within one to two days, and how long rigor mortis lasts depends on the environment that the body is in, including the temperature and other factors. Human composting is when humans are left out to decompose in the dirt inside a, re a reusable decomposition or recomposition vessel. The results supposedly do not smell and they can be used in the garden. This practice could become legal in the state of Washington. And additionally, in the Victorian era, for widows, the time period to mourn for a spouse was two and a half years, and on the contrary for a widower, it was only three months. Women who had lost their husbands were to only wear black for two years, and then after those two years were up, they were only allowed to wear dark, subdued colors. Now during this time of mourning, there was no dancing. There were they were not allowed to really attend parties, and laughing was considered taboo for a widow during this time. And now we're on to the good stuff. Now we're on to the post-mortem photography. We've all seen them, the olden photographs of either adults, both young and old, or children who appear to be asleep while surrounded by their families. 
these macabre photos are what is known as post-mortem photography. The Victorian age was riddled with heartache and disease. When, to, when contagious diseases such as tuberculosis, cholera, diphtheria, and other ailments ran rampant, death was no stranger to anyone living in this area. Before the time of Queen Victoria's reign in the mid-1800s, lockets of a deceased person's hair was woven into rings and worn by the mourners. Death masks were always were also made out of wax and the symbols and imagery of death were found in art, especially paintings and sculptures. In the mid-1800s, photography was on the rise. It was affordable and becoming more popular. The first type of photograph was the daguerreotype, which was in 19, which was in 1839, which was a small picture that was highly detailed on polished polished silver. Now this did cost a pretty penny, but it did not cost nearly as much as having someone paint a portrait of someone. By the 19, well, by the 1850s, more and more photographers came to be, and the need for the costly daguerreotype fell to the wayside. Less expensive procedures were introduced by the 1850s, such as using paper or thin metal or even glass. This was when depth photography came into fruition. In Victorian nurseries, disease ravaged children's lives for years to come. The nurseries were plagued with diseases such as rubella, typhus, cholera, measles, scarlet fever, and also diphtheria. The thought of a photograph being taken was all too often for the families of the children who wanted one last glimpse of their child before the disease had taken them. As time progressed and healthcare helped raise the life expectancy of children, the need for death photography gradually diminished. Death photography was also known as a death portraiture. Post-mortem photography and mourning portrait. In America, post-mortem photography was becoming more popular as it moved out of private trade journals and into public discussion in the mid to late 19th century. In the United Kingdom, it was customary to depict the dead in artwork such as drawings and paintings as far back as the 15th century. This is thought to have originated in Western Europe, and then it became widespread and reached Great Britain. Now at this time, these portraits done of the deceased were restricted to wealthy classes, including clergymen and monarchs. Then with the emergence of photography, which was a way cheaper alternative, the practice of death portraits became more accessible to a range of social classes. As we said before, post-mortem photography was quite popular in Victorian Britain from 1860 to 1910, and they were done very similarly to the 
American postmortem portraits. The photographs would focus on the deceased person who was either portrayed as being asleep or with the family. The photos were usually kept in the photo album, just as if they were regular pictures. Here's an interesting little tidbit that I found on the internet. I think you guys might enjoy it. In India, it's believed that if a loved one is burnt in Varanasi at the burn gates or funeral pyres, their soul would be able to escape the cycle of rebirth and ascend into heaven. In Varanasi, it is the only city in India to have funeral pyres burning 24 hours a day seven days a week. On average, about 300 bodies are burnt there every day. Death photographers travel to Varanasi to take pictures of the bodies daily for their families for 24 to $40 a day. The photos can serve as proof of death, and it also can serve as a memento for the family. Post-mortem photographers had a slave have a slogan: "Secure the shadow and air the substance fades." This saying reflected on the Victorians' fascination with death and the fleeting nature of mortality. Post-mortem photography served as a way for the deceased person to live on through the portrait, even after death. These photos were also called mirrors with memories. They were often the only photo of the deceased person that the family ever had. The point of postmodern photography was not to only to capture the image of the person, but also to make them appear alive. Great efforts were put into these scenes, such as putting the deceased with the family toys, dogs, livestock, friends, dolls, you name it. And these settings were called morning tableau, an attempt to create a lasting image in, an, in a very evocative way. Examples of this would be a live husband holding his dead wife, or a mother holding her deceased child while surrounded by the child's siblings. The deceased were usually photographed with their favorite thing, which included a book, a bible, a rosary, their favorite pet, their favorite crucifix, or even their favorite flowers. These sleeping poses were thought to bring victory of death. Day visit was an invention that came a bit later, which provided multiple prints from a single negative, which made it possible for the postman photographs to be shared with other family members. Contrary to modern myths that have been popping up all over the internet, few deceased individuals were propped up into a standing position, head clamps, and standing apparatuses were used on living subjects. These were used to hold the living in their pose during the long exposure time while taking a photograph. The standing apparatuses were thought to have been used 
would not be able to hold the weight of a fully grown adult, and it would not be able to pr produce a graceful, lifelike pose. Another aspect that made this hypothesis improbable is rigor mortis. As we mentioned before, rigor mortis sets in in 2-6 hours after death, and it can last 24-48 to 48 hours. This made the body very difficult or even impossible to work with as it was too stiff. Another form to document the dead was to have a portrait of the deceased painted by an artist. These artists would paint a portrait posthumously from the photograph. The practice required great artifice, and this sometimes strangely depicted scenes with children or infants floating towards heaven. This would also include disproportionate features, artless poses, life and dead lifelike stares, and twisted stares as well. These itinerant postmodern artists were usually from poor families, and they were not the best artists from the art schools as well. The more reputable artists would, would be able to decline this offer of work, leaving the goalish task to these starving artists. Victorian photography had other ways to make the deceased look more lifelike in the photographs, to add color to the person's pallor. The photographer would have added a tint of color to the deceased cheeks or lips to make them just look a little bit more rosy. Even more so, the photographer would may even paint on eyes with color and all on top of the deceased person's eyelids to appear to make them open. Now, as you can imagine, the result was either very poignant or rather ghastly. Some photographers even tried to open these deceased person's eyes, which this was a rather grisly effect. When eyes remained open after death, they dry up and the exposed corneas turn from a reddish orange to a black. However, if the eyes were opened soon enough after death, what was known as the black stain couldn't take effect yet. This was possible but a daunting task, and according to photographer Charles E. Orr, you could open the eyes of the deceased easily with the handle of a teaspoon. In the mid-1800s, post-mortem photography was a vital ritual in the resumption in the remembrance of the dead in America. In today's age, we may look at these photographs with a certain sense of bullishness or a morbid sense of fascination or curiosity. But however, to the Victorians, the postmodern photography was deeply cherished and appreciated by the Victorians, and it gave them an image to hold on to for eternity. The appreciation was greatly expressed in journal entries, writings, and diaries. 
moving on. I hope you guys liked that. I hope you guys learned something new. Right now, I'm about to take you guys to some Victorian funeral superstitions and practices. So I have about 20 instances of their superstitions that I think you guys will find interesting here. I hope you guys found the post-mortem tidbit really interesting. I thought it was really fascinating. And I hope you guys, you know, learned something new. And, you, you know, didn't believe the whole standing apparatus and the head clamp thing to make a dead body stand on its own. Because I personally didn't really know what I thought about before I read and did my information and my research. But anyway, moving on. Our next topic is superstitions. Superstitions. And let's begin. So our first superstition is if a firefly somehow flew into your home, it meant that someone was soon doomed to die. Also, if you smell roses and roses are not present, someone will soon die. Now, if I didn't mention this before, this is all superstitions that came from Victorian England and America. This is something that they all believed in. Number three, we have, if you don't hold your breath while going past a graveyard, you will not be buried after you die. Number four, if you see yourself in a dream, you will soon die. Number five, if you dream about a birth, someone you know will die soon. Number six, if you see an owl during the daytime, a death will soon follow. Number seven, never speak ill of the dead, or they will come back to haunt you, or serious misfortune will soon follow. Number eight, only having red and white flowers in a vase foretells a death, especially in a hospital. Number nine, if a sparrow lands on a piano, someone in the household will die. Number 10. If a bird crashes through a window, or if the bird pecks at the window, there has been a death. Number 11. If it rains on an open grave, then someone in the family will die within the year. Number 12. Large raindrops indicate a death has occurred. Number 13. If the deceased person had a good life and they were a good person in their life, in their life, then only flowers would bloom on the grave. But if they had a bad life and they were a terrible person, only weeds would grow on the grave. Number 14. Never wear anything new to a funeral, especially shoes. Number 15. If several deaths have occurred in the same family, tie a black ribbon to anything left alive that has entered the house, even dogs and chickens. This will prevent death from spreading further. Number 16. If it rains on the funeral procession, it indicates that the, that this, that the deceased had gone to heaven. Number 17. A clap of thunder during a funeral following a burial 
means that the deceased soul has departed and has gone to heaven. Number 18. If you hear three knocks and no one is there, it indicates that someone close to you has died. This is also called three knocks or death. Number 19. Stop the clock in a death room or you will receive bad luck. And last but not least, number 20. A dog howling at night while someone in the house is sick is a bad omen. omen. However, it can be reversed by turning over one shoe while reaching underneath the bed. So tell me, have you guys ever heard of any of those superstitions? Let me know. I mean, when I was doing my research, I read that a lot of older folk and people, you know, who lived in, like, Ireland and England and, you know, a lot of those older folks, they believed in all those superstitions. So you tell me down in the comments, which one of those have you guys ever heard before? Maybe you've heard it from your grandmother, your great-grandmother, or even your mother, whoever, your aunt. Whoever you know is kind of superstitious. Because it's always interesting to learn new superstitions. And who knows, maybe there's some truth behind them. And before we sign off on tonight's episode, I want to take you guys to California. And we're going to learn about the Zalid House. Thank you guys so so much for joining me for tonight's episode i hope you guys enjoyed it and before we say goodnight i want to take you guys to the haunting of the zalid house you guys may have heard of the zalid house through ghost adventures and zach bagans and other various ghost hunting teams that had paid this historical house a visit but if you haven't i'm gonna give you guys a quick rundown haunted Zalad House. Now, the Zalad House was built in Pottersville, California in 1891 by John Zalad, a Bohemian immigrant. Bohemia is now the Czech Republic. John and his family built themselves a European-style mansion that was quite unique to the region of Pottersville. There weren't many homes like this, so it stood out. John Zalad ran both a saloon and a card room in the back of the house. Some of his bets in high-stake card games paid off, but in 1912 that all changed, and for the worst. The house now serves as a museum, and is known to be notoriously haunted for a great deal of time. The Zalad House is located on 393 North Hockett Street in Pottersville, California. Architects Hugh and John Templeton designed the building in the style of the Second Emperor and is the only one in the area of Pottersville. The design includes a mansard roof decorated with dormer windows and a porch wooden decorations. In 1977, the house was converted into a museum, 
and it was added to the National Register of Historic Places on March 31, 1987. On December 10, 2016, the museum was featured on an episode of Ghost Adventures Season 13, which featured a cursed chair that caused people to experience chest pains. The misfortune of the Zalid family began with one of their children. Mary Jane came down with tuberculosis, eventually succumbing to the disease after a lengthy, hard battle. Five years after that, Anna Zalid's husband, William Brooke, was shot four times fatally by a woman named Julia Howe after he had made advances towards her and after she rejected him, he started rumors about an affair. Julia was married. At the time of the shooting, William was sitting in a rocking chair in a hotel courtyard, and the chair that he was killed in is still preserved today, even with the bullet holes still in it, and that chair sits in the museum. Edward Zalid, the son of the house, was thrown from his horse in 1922 and he was killed when he succumbed to his injuries. Edward also ran a bootlegging business during Prohibition. The saddle that he was riding during his fatal ride is now displayed at the Zalit House Museum. So after a decade of death and sadness, the Zalit House distanced themselves from the house, and they only came back to check in on it now and again. The last Zalid family member to actually live in the house was Pearl, who moved back into her home for the last remaining years of her life. She moved back in 1962, and she died in 1970. She left the family home with the intention of it being converted into a museum. She left it to the city in memory of her parents. As far as the paranormal experiences go in the household, there is the mysterious scent of unexplained medicine that can be smelled all through the house. These ghostly aromas are picked up usually on the anniversary of Mary Jane's death. Is it no wonder why the Zalid house is so haunted when all of the family's original possessions and furniture are still in the home? Thanks for joining me for tonight's episode. I will see you guys in the outro. And I want to thank you guys so, so much for joining me. I hope you guys enjoyed tonight's episode. And you learned something new. You're entertained and, you know, you're maybe even a little creeped out. If you don't know already, I'm Tori from Demimond Paranormal, and each and every Friday we release all new episodes, Demimond Paranormal, all things paranormal, all things supernatural. We, we pick a different topic each and every week. Sometimes it's on something that happened in history, or sometimes it could be something about a witch or some type of witchcraft or 
maybe some type of vampire from all around the world. Like I said, all things paranormal. With that being said, I want to wish you guys a good night and sweet dreams. Be kind to one another. Stay safe and make good choices. And I'll see you next week. But until then, stay spooky.